Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright, host of this show. Uh, we'll be doing something entirely different uh, on this show that we've done before. All right, this is going to be episode 154, the creation of concrete minimalism. Now, what's very different about this is a couple of things. First of all, we're going to talk about something that I pretty much innovated, which is a different type of uh, a version of of micro writing. Uh, it can be uh, in part of flash fiction, which is what I used it mostly for over the last couple of decades, and then sometimes even in in, in some of the uh, the nonfiction, uh, the essays or the you know the literary works. So, well, well, what I'll do here is. We'll have a little introduction where we'll talk about how I come about having to do something like this. And then we'll do various readings to kind of give you examples. Some of the flash fiction and some of the of the non-flash fiction of using this this different form. Alright, uh, we'll start with the, um, the introduction. It's pretty much a, a, an introduction uh, to innovation. And then we'll go on to the, uh, the various um, pieces themselves. On the, the site's description... When you look at your link on and listening to the show, you'll actually be able to see um, these uh, um, these paragraphs uh, from these things that I've taken from there that I'm reading to you on the show. You'll be able to see them on the description, as well as the uh, the the link to where you can actually go to the work that's been uh, published on you know somewhere in some journal on the internet, and you can read the whole thing if you want and, and kind of get the whole effect. But I didn't want to read every one of these pieces and you know be here for two hours or something. All right, I just wanted to have a, a good show about this, uh, something I've been wanting to do for quite some time. This is the best way I think about on coming about it, okay? Now, to open this up, understand this, all right? I've gone over many different angles and topics about not only how to be a writer, but the things inside of you. You know, what you do about fear and doubt, how to handle rejection and acceptance, uh, in, in many instances, your identity, uh, what you had to do to overcome this or what you can do to overcome that. So this way you can you can start managing your own personality and therefore managing your work and going forward. Kind of giving you a, if not a step-by-step, at least enough, enough uh, I guess you could say, building blocks to get where you need to go. I mean, we're all going to fill in our own stuff. So it's never going to be, you know, some perfect example of everything. But these are the things that I did. These are things I've noticed. These are things I come up with over the years and that's what I do on the show to try to share those with you, okay? Now, in this particular instance, and I want you to understand this, I felt under the circumstance that I had to create another version of writing in order for me to get out what I wanted to do. This is not the same thing as saying to you, yeah, I'm talking about this and this is what I did. And this is something maybe you can even adapt and possibly use yourself. Because, yeah, that's a possibility you can do that if that's what you want to do. But I'm not trying to sell you anything, first of all. And second of all, 
If you don't ever do this, it doesn't mean you're not a writer. It doesn't mean that you're still not going to accomplish your goals. This is what I thought I needed to do to help accomplish mine. That that's really it. Okay? So there's no pressure here. Now there's, uh, oh, Mark did it. I need to do it too. You don't have to. It just depends on who you are. I mean, you might be more talented than I am. And you could do something different. That's great. I felt at the time me doing this, though, that I wasn't. And it wasn't a, a, a question of, uh, of fear or doubt. It wasn't even a, a question of I didn't think I had talent. It was just a question of I cannot figure for the life of me, after so many years of writing poetry, how the hell do I get over to the next literary um, prose stage of things? Because I, I did a lot of journalistic work. And, you know, writing a, a journalistic uh, nonfiction article is simply not the same as something literary. It's simply not at all. It's very straightforward. It's, it's nothing all that complicated, quite frankly. I could probably teach any child to do it. I certainly can teach any adult. Whether they're interested in doing it any well or not is another story. But it's, it, you can teach somebody that. It's much, much harder to teach somebody to do something literary. It's much harder because they have to have certain... I feel certain talents, maybe even certain insights, possibly certain things inside them already that moving them to question, to question the world, to question themselves, to question society, to question their parents, to question their family, hell, even to question their faith. You might even want to question God. These are all things that are, in many instances, necessary to help build, you know, that momentum for creativity. So I felt, and this is around like 1987, 1988. I wanted to do something literary and and prose-like beyond the prose poem, beyond just the regular articles I wrote. I wrote I wrote reports for the Air Force. I wrote articles in, in, in newspapers for the Air Force. I did journalistic articles for other newspapers. And when I, when I came to the States, it's not the same thing as literary. So I honestly thought when I was doing all those things in that, you know, straightforward it, uh, journalistic uh, nonfiction type of form that maybe uh, it would help spur on the creativity for literary. Maybe it, it was a bridge to get there. For me, it wasn't. Maybe for others, it will be, and that's great. Okay, because I'm not I'm not discounting that, but I'm telling you, for me, it just simply wasn't. It took me two years to figure out how I was going to get there. I mean, I kept reading reading uh, Orwell and Huxley and all the people I love so much, and I could not figure out how I can even come close to some of the short works they did. I just couldn't, you know, and that's because I'm not them. But at the time, I thought, maybe I'll help spur some me. Maybe it'll help me pick up. Now, don't get me wrong. Writing and reading have a real relationship. There is a real connection. The more you read, the more you see how other people do things, it does have an impression on your creativity. It does have... Uh, I, I guess you could say an imprint, maybe, even on your psyche to a certain extent. Yeah, there's certain things you see, there's certain things you get excited about, there's certain things you're like, okay, I got more of a mental image on it from reading. Yes, but it's still, for me, anyway, it didn't get me over to where I needed to go. It simply didn't. It was then that I realized, by experimenting around, that I absolutely had to figure out my own version of how to do this now flash fiction was only starting to really start coming out you know and I, I would say that you know probably the mid 80s started getting a little bit more accepted especially in the academic world which believe it or not resisted it because they were so stuck on the short story and and if you know me on the show and if you read any of my writing i, I usually don't miss too many opportunities to bash them because they're so disappointing in many ways 
you know, because they, they never seem to let go of the establishment until 50 years later, you know, after you're dead or if you don't care anymore. Yeah, thanks for catching up. That, that's pretty much how they have always been. So uh, you'd think about an institution, uh, academia, that was holding on to the short story for probably over 100 years. They're still trying to enforce the same, the same damn rules. But guess what? People in the mid-1980s are not the same as the people in the mid-1880s, okay? <laughs> They're simply not. You know, everybody's going to write 15,000, 20,000-word uh, 20, uh, stories you know, about this, that, and whatever, and, and everybody's going to publish it. The publishing started changing in many instances. Things got, got shorter. So did our extension span. All these things happened, making us ready for the Internet evolution, which actually, in many ways, almost enforced that. So flash fiction was a perfect vehicle for all this because it fits nicely. And the attention span that we currently have and what's even allowed on the Internet in many instances, you know. I don't know about you, but it's really hard to read 20,000 words on the Internet. It really is. I don't care what kind of screen you have and what kind of glasses you have and what kind of stamina you have. You know, you do that enough, your eyes hurt. It becomes an issue. You know, it really does. And God forbid it doesn't move quick enough or, you know, if it sort of like meanders around for a while, which was sometimes short stories can do. And they can get away with doing that. But most people are like, oh, my God, I'm about to fall asleep over here. And then they're going to just shut the computer off or go have a Scooby snap or something. But, you know, they're not going to continue on, unfortunately. Slash fiction helps solve a lot of that because it's short enough to keep your attention span. And you can still get some interesting creative things out of it. You could even get some version of characterization. It's not as easy. You have to really go long on a flash fiction to, to get any kind of full amount of it. But still, it is thoroughly possible. So, I said to myself, well, how the hell am I going to create this thing? I got to do this from scratch. I got to come up with some ideas. Well, well, first thing I did was, I'm like, well, I know poetry well. been doing it for a number of years. I feel very, very comfortable in it. Why don't I try to figure out some of the things I like in poetry that I use on a regular basis and see if I could start using that in this pro style that I'm trying to create. And one of the things I came up with is I want to use, okay, uh, some version of a poetic metaphor or two. I really, really wanted to use alliteration because I loved it uh, and, and everything that I've did poetic-wise. And I just like, this can work great in prose. Why are enough people not doing this? So... You'll notice it's a real hallmark of a lot of stuff I do. If you read any of my material, especially some of the books, like Waking the Lion, which is a literary book about writing, you know, or some of the uh, the fiction uh, books, uh, like the, the Cemetery uh, is uh, Full. Uh, that one, you'll have a lot of my pieces, a lot of the fiction pieces that, that have this. Now, keep understanding, though, even though I created this, this innovative form, which I call concrete minimalism, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means and what I did with it, um, not everything I do in nonfiction or fiction actually follows this school that I, that I created because there's times where, I don't know why, I can't honestly give you an answer straightforward, uh, there's simply times where I've written things that it didn't seem like it needed it. It didn't seem like it was going that way. I kept going and worked out just fine. So you'll see pieces on the internet uh, I've written. Uh, one uh, called uh, Harry Stole a Tomato. It's one of my actually uh, close heart favorite ones. Uh, it's written flash forward, straight forward, flash fiction, straight forward, flash fiction. Nothing about this concrete minimalism at all. Hell, it even contains a little bit of humor, which I'm not always that known for. 
So it's just different. I've had other uh, nonfiction pieces the same way. So I'm giving you examples when we go on the show, when I read this stuff a little later, on the ones I did within that concrete minimalism that I created. There are plenty of other times where I just write straightforward, and I'm happy with that. Uh, what turns it on and off? Uh, hell if I know. I wish I did. But maybe just because I created it, there's some things inside me that know where I need to go and others I don't. That's only I guess I can come up with it because I don't really have some plan. I'm going to sit down today, Mark, and I'm going to write uh, a great um, flash fisting piece using my concrete minimalism as, as my approach tonight. It doesn't work that way. Never said that to myself. Never actually went around that as a goal. Nope. I write the same way I've always written based on notes and feelings and stuff that's going on until it forms together. Sometimes it goes into the school and sometimes it doesn't. More of my work does reflect this than not okay so i would say probably 75 percent of it but the other the other you'll see other internet you're like that's not that's just normal straightforward stuff that's right so it kind of works that way for me now like anything uh that i believe in preaching i believe it should have a title <laughs> that's me i'm not the untitled guy i'm not somebody that does does something and you know, anonymous, and to me, that I don't know what the hell the point of doing all that work is if I got to do it that way. That's why I so much against that, and I don't allow that in my own artistic journal. If you don't have a title, you're not getting published. You don't. If you have a crappy title, you're not going to get published. So I'm pretty serious about that. So I figured, hey, I'm coming up with this idea. I need to have some kind of uh, name for it. Uh, but ironically, unlike where I normally have a name first for something and then I kind of create things and it's part of my notes and part of my strategy, it wasn't the same thing for me creating this innovative uh, approach to uh, to flash writing or, or uh, micro writing, if you want to call it. I, it came later because I was still trying to figure out how to go about it. So I came up later on with uh, concrete minimalism. I even wrote a, an essay about it, which is in my uh, Waking the Lion Inside Writing book. You can get that on Amazon, okay? And it has all kinds of essays and articles about writing and all different types of forms of writing, all right? So I came about this mainly because I had noticed, and I wish I knew it as noticed at first, but I didn't, so I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I noticed it after an editor who accepted my work, my first work in doing this form, had said, wow, it's amazing how you can compress so many different things at the same time yet the story still stays cohesive so i like the fact that the work i was doing was definitely minimal definitely in the minimalist school i didn't want to call it flasher though that was used so many different times already out there i didn't like that though i wanted something that sounded more formal something like i actually gave some thought to because i did it took me a while to really come up with this for myself and i like the fact that because I had a lot of things going on, it was to me. I I felt like it was it was concrete. I was like putting all this stuff in, solidifying that concrete in there, and then it's all being held together by that that minimalist uh, flesh structure. And that's really what he's referring to. It was the first really, uh, and that was the editor of satire, by the way. First published my uh, my first uh, example of concrete minimalism flash fiction uh, called Philosophy of Rent, and they did it in 1990. It took me almost two years from the time I started in the late 1987s until about maybe the fall of 1989, which I was still in Germany at the time, uh, and getting ready to leave. I had to wrap up my apartment and all kinds of stuff, and so that was a, a real transition. But I was still—it was something to come about now. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is it. So 
I had figured out for myself because that was a problem. I could not figure out what can I do to get into this whole flash thing. I knew that and my I could feel it in my bones that it's where I was supposed to be at for writing. I'm not worried about it, it was the newest thing because I just knew that it was it was what I wanted to do. I could just see it. I'm like, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do, but how do I approach it? I even checked out a few forms of it that were out there, but I didn't like where they were going and how they did things. It almost to me seemed like they were just trying to make a short story shorter. Sometimes some of the early flash fiction was just pretty much a, a shorter short story. To me, that's boring then. I'm not interested in that. If that's what you want to do to this day, you can. I don't think anything's wrong with it. Just for me, artistically, it's boring because I'm trying to stay away from that crap. I'm not trying to go back into it in a smaller version of it. I want to do something different, something that reflects what I care about and reflects my own uh, worldview and, of course, reflects artistically how I think it should go about things. So, in many ways, I created this form, this concrete minimalism, because I felt that I needed, me personally, I needed a mechanism to help activate my own creativity, to help figure out my own confidence in this new form because I was feeling very new in it. And of course, at that point, not as confident as I normally feel about things and certainly not, you know, um, as brave as I'd like to be. So I'm like, in many instances, I had to create my own language, so to speak, artistically in order to be able to start doing things. And once I started doing that, I was able from that time to today, able to write prolifically and regularly and of course like I was saying maybe three out of four times I write along this line but it established to me what Mark wanted to do but what his creative self also was interested in it allowed us to have that communication that connection you know it was almost like you know um you're over in Antarctica and I'm over and I'm over hanging out in France and we really can't talk to each other until somebody can can fix that that line in the ocean that will communicate to us on the phone. Or maybe maybe they had to put some batteries in the water talkers or something like that. But something that allowed us to finally communicate. You know, where we knew it was possible, we just didn't know how to get it done or, you know, when it could get done. And it's really the same thing. I had to figure out a, a bridge between myself, you know, what I wanted to do, you know, in my, in my gut, in my heart, in my soul, certainly in my mind, and with that creative self that was ready to go do something but didn't know how the hell to do it. So that's pretty much in a, in a nutshell my introduction on, on the innovation. You'll notice it's very different than most people write and it's very different than you'll see in most flash fiction. And the reason why is because I had to come up with my own way of doing things. Okay? Uh, in fact, I had an editor ask me one time, uh, probably like the third or fourth time I, I got published using this uh, form, they're like, you know, you could just use what everybody else is using. I go, I know, I tried that. I could not get my head around it. I had to come up with something different just because it was the only way I felt I can really enter into that. Now, the funny thing is, is that I probably did something with my poetry that was similar, but I didn't feel that it was such a dramatic change because it was mostly in free verse. It, it, didn't, it just didn't feel like I was doing anything super edgy or innovative or in, super creative or inventing anything new. It just seemed like I was going along with everybody was doing, just putting my own voice and my own views in there. This, of course, it was very, very much different because it took a long time for me to figure out how I want to go about it because it took a while. To sort of like train myself into speaking in this type of a language. Because that's really what it comes to when you create something new like that. In this case, you know, an innovative style of writing. You're really creating a whole other language for yourself and a whole other voice. 
and you have to get used to it yourself because you want to keep using it on a regular basis as much as possible. So here we go. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a, um, it's going to be like a, a short paragraph of, of each piece. And then we can talk a little bit about that, but, and then uh, I'll tell you the name of it is, like I said, on the uh, description of the show, you'll have the link if you want to read the rest of it. Okay. This is going to be from philosophy of rent. It's my first attempt at this uh, concrete minimalism. Okay. Um, it did get nominated, um, for, um, uh, Pushcart uh, Prize uh, for Fiction, and I did win another another uh, fiction award, a, a regional one in New Jersey as well. And uh, so, um, it's a hell of an introduction to doing this for the first time, because it's really officially my first piece of, 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 of my version of flash fiction that, that I put out there. And that, that started in 1990, okay? Why bother listening? Fear is a friend beamed in from skyscrapers built by the lowest bidder. Grab that remote switch to something more soothing. You can't fight City Hall. You can't change the world. It's somebody else's problem. You don't want to get involved. Not in my backyard. Daddy will walk out. Mommy might start drinking again. And my God, what would the neighbors think? So that was one of the paragraphs of uh, Philosophy of Rent. You can see already some of the examples I was talking about. There's probably more in the piece that you might be able to cling on to more than I did. I just tried to find a, the piece uh, in that piece uh, to um, to read to you that I, I, I found the most interesting personally and that I enjoyed writing the most. Also, I remember uh, even to this day um, in 2020, you know, I remember writing this and how long it took because I'm, I'm literally writing a piece in a new style, constantly changing it because I'm not just changing it for the... For my own voice of creatively what I want to say in the individual piece, but also does it reflect this language I'm trying to create? And oh my God, what a what a what a mess and what a mixture of everything! It, it took a, it seemed like forever, but uh, I finally got it done, and it needed to get done because once I was able to fashion this to where I wanted it to be, and it got published, and I got some some credibility with it, and even some awards with it, uh, then I knew that I could do more and, and not feel so apprehensive. Okay, next one. This one is called uh, Waiting Room Madness. Now, these are all the fiction pieces. I'll tell you when they're nonfiction, all right? We'll have something different to talk about with that. All right, Waiting Room Madness. Why does a pharmacist make as much money as an average doctor? Their difference in education is six years. Yet my pharmacist leaves his drugstore every evening in a BMW and returns in the morning driving a Jaguar. And he's given 10% discounts to senior citizens for heart pills. Something is wrong with this picture. If that's his brain on drugs, I wonder what his house looks like. So, there's a... Um, and going back to the philosophy of rent, it, it's pretty much a, a, a tale about a person that um, had become cynical with society and was in a relationship with somebody that he just felt that he was so trapped in, he might as well just go the extra mile, you know, and become like a criminal. Because, you know, if he had to pay for everything and do everything, he might as well just go and, and just put all all the way in. Pretty much fully compromised. And this one right here, uh, Waiting Room Madness, it's pretty much about somebody that... And we've all we've all had this, uh, this occurrence happen in our lives. You know, uh, whether you're in the emergency room or you're in the doctor's office, it, the wait seems like it's forever. 
Maybe it technically isn't forever. Maybe if you timed it, it wouldn't be so bad. But you got lots of things going on in your mind. Am I sick? Am I dying? If this is happening, da da da. You know? I remember one time saying, uh, geez, this is $150 copay for this crap. Wonderful. Let <laughs> me get a candy bar. I guess it won't matter at this point what the hell's wrong with me. Um, so it's really about that, about the things that can go into your mind and the observations you have and you, you, you have the time on your hands. And if you're not giving in to the doubt and the fear that's already crossing your mind and your heart, uh, then you're just observing other stuff in, in some kind of wicked way just to, you know, pass the time or maybe just to ease uh, your own tensions. And it kind of goes in that in that direction. All right, next. Now, this is actually based on a, a true event, actually. Tampa Bay Tantrum. I recently attended a sporting event with my young boys and had an encounter with an intoxicated woman who was incapable of refraining from using profanity in my family's presence. I mentioned it to her and she cursed right at me while my children stared in disbelief. Her husband turned around with a strange look on his face. At first I thought it was because his balls were still in her purse and he needed to retrieve them before he uttered the word. Then I realized he was searching for his pants since his wife has been wearing them from the beginning of their sad excuse of a marriage. I know, that was kind of rough. Now, in that particular piece, and you'll see this is a hallmark of some of my other ones, I started as I went on along with my uh, concrete minimalism uh, form of writing is I discovered that in many instances, as long as I can keep the story flowing and consistent and keep it encapsulated inside that flash structure, I can get away to a certain extent to having sentences that normally would be run on. So you'll notice that a number of times I have things that a grammar professor would say, that's a run-on sentence. And I'm like, I don't give a crap, okay? Because that don't mean crap to me. Neither does grammar mean crap to anybody if you can get away with still getting across what you want to get across, okay? Because guess what? Yes, you can break the rules if you know what the damn rules are. You have to know what they are first, then you can break them. Now, I'm not encouraging everything you do, you have to break a rule. But what I'm saying is when you have to, you can. But in the end, your job is still to have a cohesive story. And your job is still to have some damn consistency in it that makes some sense. It's not going off to another direction over here. We're not at a hockey ring one moment, the next minute we're in Africa. Okay, that's not going to work. All right? And, of course, the third reason, and I feel the most important reason, is if you're establishing a connection with the reader, you got some rapport, well, guess what? It doesn't matter if it's run off or not. It doesn't really matter. Because in the end, it still it still runs well. It still Even if it runs too much, too bad. So that's what I did in that particular piece. You don't see it in the number as well. It's one of my own particular stylish things. Sometimes uh, people will get annoyed by it. I got a couple of people that uh, when, I, when they first... Uh, Looked at the piece, they got mad, you know. You know, did you realize you had like six running sentences? I'm like, yeah, I did that on purpose. Of course I realized it. If that's why you rejected it, all right, well, then you have a nice day. But someone's going to pick it up because I believe in it. And, of course, they did. So uh, thank you for picking that up. But you'll notice that uh, throughout that piece, and you'll see it in others as well. It's part of what I, what I do in this particular uh, form. I like that because when I write... In a more standard, straightforward fashion, whether it be flash fiction or, or, or nonfiction, I don't do that. I'm actually very careful about having shorter sentences. But when I do this form, I like running that thought because I think in many instances, like you've seen right there, it carries 
a certain emotionality that wouldn't be present in that piece. It carries, as you can see, a real big of an annoyance over there. Maybe even a, a slight bit of an anger. Although I had someone, someone actually told me, that's an angry piece. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. But, you know, someone is trying to call a cop on you and, and acting foolish. You know, what, are you supposed to be happy? You're going to be annoyed. You know, like, are you nuts? But it's not. It's nothing that's full of, uh, uh, of profanity or violence or anything idiotic. It's very literary. It gets you to that to that to that level of understanding what that person is feeling, what they're going through at that moment, and that's why it, I found it was so necessary. And I, and I think also uh, one of the things I, I liked about the particular innovation that I came up with is it, it served a lot of the things I wanted to put in there. I I I like. The, the style that I, that I helped create that uh, allows me to talk about a number of issues that are going on at the same time as I'm still running a, a form of a narrative in, inside the fiction. I'm not a big believer in the dialogue on, on short stories or, or fiction at all. I'm not against them. I publish that stuff in aerial chart all the time. I'm somebody that almost never practices that. I'm just not a dialogue person when it comes to that. I, I save that for my drama, my plays. I don't, I don't save it for anything else but that. So... I like being able to, uh, in many ways, include a lot of things that are going on, you know, as well as uh, in, in the story itself. It allows me to be able to speak about a lot of things, and that's another reason I like about the form is that, you know, it has more than one dimension then that way versus just being about one thing. I have other pieces that don't do that, but those are the ones that are not concrete minimalism. You'll see that. I mean, Harry uh, Stole a Tomato is a perfect example of a straightforward flash fiction. It has one theme in mind, and that's it. There's nothing secret going on there. There's nothing special going on there. It's just one straight slice of life tale, and that's it. But not these pieces. They they have a lot more than that. And that that's what I liked about writing with them. And that's kind of why uh, I also probably felt I had to uh, create something new, just because not only that I needed to communicate something new and figure out how to write something, you know, that would be interesting. But I wanted to have a lot of different thoughts in there that other people were not doing. And that's one of the first things you do. I feel when you look at somebody else's writing, whether it's in my journal or maybe these things you might read yourself here and look at the full link, uh, other people's writing is a lot of times you're sizing up the things that you feel you kind of admire about it and then the other things that you feel that, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in going in that way or that direction or that, that particular thing. And that's fine too. You'll probably see some stuff in mind. And you're like, no, I'm not for that, but maybe I'm for that. And that's great. Because that's what you have to do. Because that's how you're able to separate the things that can push you forward versus the things that won't. I, I tell people all the time as writers, there's nothing worse than, than putting down something that you don't really believe in. That's something that you even don't even like. You shouldn't even have to go that road. If you can't write what you don't want to write, if you can't write what you really love or what you find exciting, then just don't even write that. There's no point. Because it becomes a torture session and it becomes, a, to me, a useless exercise then. You know? Somebody asked me one time, because, you know, they read a few pieces and they're like, yeah, it has a real weird black humor, sarcasm, a bit of anger, this, that, and the usual stuff I hear, okay? So it's not like I don't hear this before, so I don't even get offended, all right? Like, well, you, you think you really need that for everything? I'm like, well, I got plenty of pieces that don't do that. But this is the ones and the style that I like, and this is what I like to do. To me, it reflects the things that 
you know, I want to see out there and then I, I want to see talked about. Period. Because that's me. I mean, that's it. So, I don't want to tell you. This is an Italian kid from New Jersey. You know, and, I, and I've seen a lot and, I, and I've done a lot. So, sometimes I want my work to reflect that as well. It doesn't mean that everything has to be about nature and flowers and a pretty girl. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. I, I'm just not the person to deliver that kind of message to you about those things, okay? All right. Now, let's go on to the next one over here. It's another... Another short fiction piece over here using this style, okay? This one's called, I Will Melt the Robots the First Chance I Get. You like your smartphones talking to you. You probably talk to it more than your loved ones. Think for a moment. It doesn't know you. It doesn't care about you. It's recording you. It's tracking you. And one day it will betray you faster than that bearded dude in the Bible. Did he hang himself out of deep guilt? Or was he just disgusted that the dastardly act only paid 30 coins? Your murderers won't weigh this clever philosophy, for that's a human response. So I wanted to have some fun with that. Um, everybody who knows me at all knows that um, you know, I'm a person that will use technology as much as he possibly can, but I don't like getting addicted with it. I don't like it trying to make decisions for me. I still need to be human, still need to be the person in charge. If anything, technology should be our servants and not the other way around. So it's my piece to me. I'm pretty much saying, hey, if we're not going to stay the master of this planet, it will be one day run by, run by robots. Just like that Terminator movie. No joke. Okay. Mm hmm. Okay, and the last of the um, the ones I wanted to bring to your attention, this one's called Kind. I'm not an animal hater. I got a dog, two cats, and two goldfish. But I'm deeply suspicious of people who turn pets into family members. I wonder how much humanity has disappointed them. Are they more disposed to be humane towards animals than their own kind? I am not trying to start a fight. But I don't give a hoot about a stray cat when homeless vets sleep under a leaky bridge. I'm not too impressed with blowhards blabbing about human rights abroad while stepping across vagrants to rescue two Taco Bell dogs here in our homeland. If I hear another lecture regarding lizards, I'm going to beat a hippie with their nasty hemp sandals until they declare hygiene is not against their religion. And by the way, I don't give a flying frack about frogs in the ecosystem. And no, plants don't have feelings. I do, you dickheads. So, there's a fun story right there. A little facts, fiction piece about somebody just having a, a moment, maybe to themselves, about a topic you don't hear a lot often. And it always, it always crosses my mind, so one day I wanted to write about it. Because I'm somebody that I really uh, adore animals, but... You know, I don't like the folks that get so carried away that it, it, it almost becomes like a, a, a religion to them. In many instances, I have to wonder, you know, um, what kind of a life do they have? Do they have any friends? Is it just, just the animals? I mean, do they hate people? You have to wonder about all these sort of things because it's unusual. You know, I've seen people take care of animals better than they've taken care of their family members. And I really have seen people step over a homeless guy just to get to their damn dog because he got off the leash. 
And these are usually the same people that want to like raise my taxes so I can pay for all these programs to help people. But uh, they're not too good on doing anything in real life. So how about you let me keep my own money and I'll do what I got to do. And, you know, I guess you do what you have to do, which is talk and not actually act on anything. But I wanted to write a piece about that. I just thought that was uh, interesting and unusual. And it's just one of those things. I'm one of those people that have those thoughts and I, I try to put them in this kind of form. And that's what I like about the form. It, it lets me do a lot of that that I normally wouldn't be able to do. Because otherwise, you know, if I read a whole essay about, you know, hypocritical uh, uh, limousine uh, uh, liberals uh, that uh, talk all this crap and don't do anything uh, uh, in, in their lives, I mean, not only is that going to sound weird, it's going to probably be boring. Right now, just talking about it's kind of boring. You know, I see that stuff all the time. It's better off addressed in a, in a different way. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to, to, to do that. I wish I didn't see that as much. I wish people were better. I really do. But wishing and, you know, seeing as they are, unfortunately, it's not the same. All right. So it is going on to the nonfiction parts. All right. I got one piece here. It's called uh, World Peace Through Intimacy. It was my first attempt. I did a few others later on in the whole book. Uh, where I was talking about how technology, in particular, you know, uh, sexual instruments or even uh, these uh, sex robots they're starting to put together out here, you know, in many ways can be detrimental to people. It's not really a wonderful addition to, to the world. It's not some stress reliever. In many ways, it's just another step to not only dehumanize people, but in many ways have become even more aggressive, you know, towards, towards females. You know, because that's what we need right now. We need more female hate in the world. That's going to make things better. Because if you think some guy is going to spend $10,000 on his robot, but somehow he's going to go out with women later on, he's just going to be a wonderful gentleman and everything's out of his system. You're nuts, okay? It, it only eggs somebody like that on. It doesn't relieve anything. It's just one of those marketing strategies from some Chinese guy in the manufacturing department of that place because I guarantee you it's made in China. Really. All right, so... Here we go. This same demented philosophy is salting the intimacy of sexuality. The act of lovemaking before marriage is not in itself an unethical dilemma. Recreational sex between consenting adults is proven to be healthy and psychologically rewarding. It is the act of sexual performance removed from humanity that must be labeled unhealthy and psychologically and spiritually destructive. The steady introduction of artificial devices into the sex act continues to erode the basic boundaries of respect and threatens to eliminate any social learning curve normally present in sexual unions. The partners made a flesh metaphor on the path to gratification. Any attention achieved or knowledge gained is spent on method and machine, not mood or mystery. And that's really what I wanted to say about that that piece. You can catch that; it'll be on my uh, my description over there. But that was a nonfiction piece, and I just wanted to get the idea out that a lot that goes on in sexuality in general, or even in the sexual act in particular, it's more it's more mental than it is physical. Meaning that you know, not every woman that you're sleeping with it needs to, to, to look like some supermodel because oftentimes the interaction you've had with this person on a date, on a walk, the funny things they say, them, their mannerisms, maybe the way they turn their head, you know, possibly the way they swing their hair or something, 
that becomes in its own self a sort of sexual energy, a sort of sexual information, a sort of way to get your own, I guess you could say, a libido a heightened. So it's not all that physical. There's a lot of emotion involved. There's a lot of psychology involved. And you don't get that from machines. That stuff is not there because it's not human. So the whole act itself becomes very mechanical, very, very robotic. Nothing fun about that at all. And, and in my opinion, I don't see any any romance in that. And I'm telling you as a guy that is not the most romantic guy in the world. But I guarantee you I'm not going to be sleeping with a damn robot. I got enough romance in me for that. And God knows enough self-respect. But in the end, you know, a piece like that, it's important to get that sort of notion out in a way that, that sounds... Even though it, it seems straightforward, it does sound more literary. It, it kind of gives you lots of different metaphors to play with, lots of different contrasts to be able to, you know, um, to contemplate. You know, again, you, you are messing with the alliteration of method and machine versus mood and mystery. Because I, I think that if you eliminate all the human stuff, then that's all sex is then. There's a method and a machine. But if you don't, and it's really about the mood, it's really about the mystery of it all. And, and that, to me, is probably the most sexually, not only satisfying, but it's also, it's really the, the kind of sex that we should have. The sex that makes sense. The sex that, that's memorable. And, and definitely the, the sex that I, I feel is, is according to who we should be as human beings. You know, if, if we're going to be human, let's have human sex, okay? I mean, <laughs> it ought to be not that difficult to understand. All right. Now, I wrote, a, uh, I wrote an essay, and most of my essays, especially if they had to do with any form of writing or some things about society, they tend to be pretty straightforward. I don't, usually don't write in this fashion, uh, in the, the, uh, the concrete minimalist fashion at all. But in this case, I did. Uh, and this is from, even, even the title itself has that, that whole allure to it. Uh, Modern Forces and the Meaningful Metaphor. They are those convinced the fundamentals of writing hasn't changed in a thousand years. An inkwell, a parchment, an idea, and quiet time are the essential ingredients of the literary endeavor. I don't disagree. My generation is the first to live through societal shifts in technology, economy, and family structure that dramatically altered the fabric of daily life. These radical changes are so profound as to befuddle our parents who are lost to offer good counsel. I live in a time where both parents work Computers are carried in your pocket, and the average adult has already had five jobs in less than 10 years out of college. The stability of homesteading a job, a home, even a cell phone number is non-existent. Everything is temporary, and nothing is secure. Freedom forces adaptions, excuse me, adaptations and artistic lives during uncertain times. If you cannot truly care, you cannot truly create meaningful metaphors in a day of mechanical conformity. So I was trying to express in that, uh, is, and you'll read it because it's a, a, a longer one, and definitely you'll have the link to that. Um, I was trying to express the, the, the fact that even as we live in a society that we can't get away from, and we can't get away from technology too, no matter what you do, some of it's going to grace your table whether you like it or not. It simply is. I remember I used to talk to a, a, a senior citizen at, at my job when I was at the bank, and Oh, they could be so uh, so upset, practically depressed, uh, that um, their insurance company forced them to get their medicine through the mail. 
because they couldn't get it at the pharmacy anymore. It was too expensive, but they were getting the same medication, but they had to get it from the mail. And all they could be worried about is, whams if they lose it, whams if they don't charge me correctly, whams if I don't have enough medicine, whams if because all they're worried about is the whole machinery involved in it, the robots, all of that stuff. They like the fact that their medicine came from some young girl as a technician or maybe some older pharmacist or something. They like the human connection. So they had to figure out a way to get, you know, some kind of humanity out of that. And wasn't an easy thing to do. Maybe we can figure it out better as somebody a little younger. But I don't know. It's not so easy. But we do have to make sure that even on the things that try to put us in a box or a corner, whether they be a stereotype or a word or a job or, you know, somebody's first impression, which you know, I already told you in many episodes before, to me it's just like a form of prejudice. Doesn't mean a whole lot, so you shouldn't put a lot into it. My first impression is he's a jerk. And later on, it's like the, the best person you ever met in your life. <laughs> we, we, we want to be able to fight through those things in our daily lives and onward so that we can retain our own sense of humanity, our own sense of personality, that we're not forced into some other stuff that we don't believe in or that we won't conform to or that we feel makes us different than who we're supposed to be. It's what you need to do every day in life and, and ultimately as a writer as well. You have to be able to do that to be who you're supposed to be. Somebody inter interesting and individualistic and in a certain extent uh, independent. All right. Now I got two examples of book reviews I did that I use this method on. I, I do it on, on, the, on the bigger books that I, I feel have real, real gravity to them. So I tend to use this, this form of doing that. I don't do as many reviews as I used to do in the past. But when I do, I spend the time to really do them. All right. All right. This is a book review from Sun and, uh, and Moon uh, by uh, uh, Michelle uh, Westerall. I'm sorry, uh, Michelle Weatherall. There you go. All right. Okay. The greeting card morality of the unthinking is precisely why books like Sun and Moon are cesarean born into a turbulent world. The poet is tasked with provoking emotional intelligence by awaking the sleepy conscience of a community that has often confused the demands of security with the desires of liberty. So it is one of the more perfect examples of what we're talking about, how... And that's why I picked this particular passage of that review because it really adds all the things. And this is, I wrote this last year. So remember, I, I formed this in 1990 and this is from 2019. It really combines all the things that I like in, in that particular innovation that I use. It combines the, the metaphors, it combines the alliteration, it combines the run-in sentences, all that stuff in one, sh in one shot. So in many ways, here is something that is three sentences long in this paragraph and You'll, you'll get a lot out of just those three sentences. That's the reason why I created that, because I want people to get more out of the minimalism than, than they normally would get. I didn't want to just be the minimalist for the minimalist's sake. It's short because it's short. I don't like that. I, I like it to be sounding and, and meaning long, but I'm short. That's really what I think is the, is the better way of going about that. Okay, and then the most recent one. Is a book review from uh, Wonderful Wastelands and Other Natural Disasters by uh, Elidio and, uh, Latore Lagaris. I hope I'm saying that right. Elidio Latore Lagaris. I think that's pretty close. Okay. 
but that is his name but you'll you'll see it on the link as well so if i messed it up very sorry um folks of puerto rico and lydio but um i'm definitely trying here okay all right in a brilliant thematic fashion set forth by engaging the natural muse imbued from the absorption of the arts before him and the torrential realities in front of him Latoria Legalis leaves the reader unable to distinguish between the catastrophic rains of a historic storm or the tears of a true-hearted heir seeking explanation for the unexplainable. Definitely a, a, a real example of me using all of that and, and going running on even longer than I normally do. But I like it because I like going with that whole moment and that whole flow. It just works well for how I want to do things. And it kind of gives you know a real a real shot to the reader when they when they... They say, man, if this guy can write this about this book, well, that damn book has to be awesome then. And that, that's the whole point of it is to be super fantastic so they know that, hey, I'm getting something that, from this that's making me write super fantastic because that book is incredible. And it really is, too. It's a real, it's a real hell of a work. I really think that it's going to last the test of time. That, that's, that's how much I, I loved reading that book and, and writing about it. Now, keep in mind, folks, more than anything else, that there are probably a lot of examples of you doing exactly what I did. You just didn't do it in a formal innovation with all these different techniques and calling it a name and all that. A lot of people do these very minimal adjustments that their own signature or that's their own style, their own angle to things. And that's fine too. You don't have to go as far as I did. I just did it because I, I felt it was really necessary for me to be able to find a way to communicate better than I was able to. And I'm glad because I, I would have stalled out for who knows how long. And that's what's really, I feel sometimes uh, frustrating about writing for people in general. And I push people now and then whenever I feel I have to. Is that sometimes they're in that kind of muck. Sometimes it's not a question of that lacking will to get something done. But they just can't visualize how to get there. What voice they should try to use you know, don't realize that oftentimes it just takes the practice of trying to figure out where your voice is. We had a whole show on that. A lot of the identity show was about that. So I really, when I do these shows, I'm really talking about a lot of stuff that I did myself as well. So I hope that folks take it as that because I try to give you real life examples of me exactly doing that. So I don't really just talk off the cuff and here's my theory and boy, I hope that works out for them. I'm going to go have a sandwich now. I'm really talking about some of my own trials and my own tribulations and my own my own fears and my own securities and, and my own, you know, uh, battles with, with, with faith and, and, and figuring out how I want to do something. Because you remember, and you'll read all of these things as well. If you check those out in a more full way, you'll, you'll see... Uh, a voice that not only is distinctive in terms of how I wrote it, but I also have a, a certain uh, way about speaking and, and, and a certain unvarnished way about going about things. It's not shy, and it certainly is uh, abrasive at times. I don't know if you want to call it angry or not. Uh, to me, I, I get, I just get tired of the word because to me it's like, you don't have anything more to say? Uh, he's angry. What the hell does that really tell anybody? Don't tell anybody a whole lot. Other than, it, you know, puts down something and then somebody says, I don't know if I read something that's angry or not. I don't know. So, uh, to me, it's not really the best characterization, okay? I don't know. Maybe annoyed can be a good word or, or possibly uh, slightly inflamed. <laughs> I don't know what the real word is. I, I honestly don't. Maybe just because I wrote it, I'm too close to it. Maybe I'm biased. Who the hell knows? But what I do know is this. 
it's my damn voice. And it certainly is the way I want to go about things. And it certainly is something I don't shy away from. Certainly I'm not ashamed about. I'm happy it's out there and, and I'll continue to do so. Because in the end, folks, when you're writing, you need to be able to find what you want to say and put it out there. And just live with it from there. As long as you could do that, you're going to be fine. It's going to be different than somebody else once you find out what it is. And, and then you just go from there. And guess what? You know, if you're trying to be popular, then writing is probably not a good thing for you. All right? I don't know. Maybe you could try to be an actor or something. Maybe that might work. Got me. Be a musician or something. I don't know. But being popular, being a writer, they don't go together, okay? When you find out who you are and what you put out there, you're going to have people that are going to like it, and you're going to have people that are going to say, what the hell is this crap? You know? I've actually gotten responses from editors that are like, I can't handle this. Really? Okay. Now, you'll read what I'm talking about there, so you'll see what I'm talking about. I don't even know what the hell these people are talking about half the times. I imbue a lot of things in there, but there's, there's nothing going on that's that controversial, you know? I, I, I think I've, I've written about, I don't know, close to 100, if not a little over, you know, flash uh, fiction pieces, you know, in my time. I think I may have had like one curse word in like a hundred. Zero sexuality, okay? Because I just don't write about that stuff. I write about it in the ethical way in, in some of my nonfiction pieces. I even have a book on it. And it's related to ethics and technology and, and humanization and all that. But I don't write that stuff in my pieces. It's not that interesting for me to write about it as a topic. So I don't know what the hell controversial they're talking about. It's just simply a, a way of going about seeing and doing things that, that's not out there. I don't know why we're supposed to write. This is where academia has its problems. You know, whatever the time of the day is or whatever, what the mood is supposed to be, whatever style is supposed to be out there. You know what I mean? Who says that? You need to be who you are. There's a problem with our world right now. I don't understand it. I still don't understand the world in many instances. Maybe I was born in the, in the, in the wrong period of time, but I don't understand how I can live Okay, I really don't. How can I live in a world that has the most freedom that it's ever had in the history of this planet that since we actually wrote down the history, yet I've dealt with the most moronic, okay? I've dealt with the most idiotic, and I've dealt with the most paranoid people that I've ever dealt with before. The people that almost want to be enslaved. They want to be in, in a corner. They want Everybody wants to call themselves a, a new characterization and being a new character. Like somehow if, you know, if you're... This, that, whatever, now you stand out. That's not freedom, folks. Okay? That's lunacy. Not freedom at all. You can't market yourself like a, like a piece of meat. You gotta be who you are. That means that you're gonna be thinking something different than other people. You might look at things differently. You might act differently and sound differently. You're probably gonna be looking differently. Dress things differently. That's what freedom is all about. Being who you want to be. Putting on what you want to wear. Saying what you want to say. Yet, I'm in, I'm in society, especially here in America, where we're supposed to have the freest society in the planet, and you got people that they, they don't even want to speak their mind anymore. They don't even want to talk about anything. Oh, it's going to start an argument. Oh, it's going to make people question to me. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. What the hell is the point of having all this freedom if we can't even talk to each other anymore? If you can't even be who you're supposed to be. 
I know writers that put down some great work and then half of the time they're either trying to bury it someplace or running away from it. Yeah, that was my time when I was going through my divorce and blah, blah, blah. And, really? Don't write, folks, if you've got to make all these qualifications, okay? If you need all that kind of stuff to do, don't even write then. Do something else, okay? Because we don't need any more writers like that. We really don't. You own what you write. You be who you're supposed to be. And the freest society on the planet, on a planet that's seen that the most freedom it's ever had, I, I find deeply disappointing. If I was God, I'd probably go to another galaxy. Let me just leave those people alone over there in the Milky Way. They're, they're friggin' idiots. They haven't figured out anything yet. All that we've been given, all that we can do, all that we can express ourselves, and you got people huddled in some apartment somewhere. No, I don't want to go out. I'm not talking about COVID. I mean, just in general. So it's beyond my understanding. Write what you know. Write what's true. Pour out your heart. Pour out your mind. Stand by it. And go out there and do what you need to be doing. That's what you're supposed to be doing as a writer. That is your job. All right? And like, uh, like Weatherall says out there in Canada, you know, he likes to say this on a regular basis, and I agree with him because he's right. Guess what? Sometimes your job is to piss somebody off. Yeah, sometimes your job is to make the uncomfortable. Sometimes your job is to tell people things that they might not want to hear. And you're not doing it because it's like, this is going to be so fun to get a bad reaction, or this is going to be fun to get somebody angry, or this is going to be fun to get somebody unsettled. No. It's because it's obvious that it's not being spoken about a lot. It's part of what we're supposed to do. Talk about things that we normally don't talk about. That's why I try to use this form. I try to talk about some of the interiors on, on, on people's feelings and what's going on. I talk about some of the things that might be going on in society in the piece that's not even about that. You get that in there. It kind of not only gives it a sort of a backdrop or a kind of a flavor, but it, it gives it another dimension because you're like, oh yeah, I just, you could be associated to what he was saying. Yeah, you're right. Blah, blah, blah. I like that. You could figure out your own way too, and you should. But please don't get into those those folks where they just want to sit on some damn fence someplace. I think I wrote a poem about that recently, put an aerial chart. Every so often I do that, I'll put something in there. Just to add a little flavor to it and maybe get a little moment out of it or something, I like it. But don't be that way at all. You know, you can't be, in my opinion, you can't be a, a writer and a fence at the same time. Okay? Writing is about making a decision. I'm making a decision about who you are, about what you want to write about, where you want to get it out there, and how you want to stand by it. It's all of that. Making decisions. If you're a fence center, you're not making really any real decisions. I guess technically, you know, if you want to become like Nietzsche over here, you could say, uh, uh, no, sir, uh, his decision is uh, to sit on the fence and make no decision. All right, we could play word games all we want, but let's talk about real life. That's not making a decision, Okay. Now, I'm not telling you that all decisions in life are, are some polar opposites. You must choose black or white. You must choose night or day. You must choose, you know, uh, red or orange or something. I mean, no, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is oftentimes we can't get anywhere with our writing, with our personality, with our identity, maybe even in how we psychologically process things in the world without making a decision because the decision means that we have chosen a direction even if it's the wrong direction i'm telling you now 
the wrong direction is still better than no direction. Still better than sitting there. I haven't done crap. Because I'm afraid to make the wrong decision. Well, guess what? Writing is about making lots of wrong decisions, just like life. Hoping that through that, through the pain, through the suffering, through the sacrifice, even possibly the expense of these decisions that could be wrong, that that's going to allow you to put together something that's going to be right. You're going to form something from that. You're going to gain something from that. That's what's called wisdom. And right now, folks, that's our problem. We get a billion people out there that have all this knowledge because they went to school. Because they got Google. They got an encyclopedia in their pocket. I got all this knowledge. And that's all wonderful, but it doesn't mean crap in the end if you don't have any wisdom. Because wisdom is about using that knowledge in an intelligent manner. So it, it, that's why I got plenty of people I get stuff from all the time. Emails, essays, poems over at Aerial Chart. I get plenty of people that are highly intelligent. Highly intelligent. I have no doubt. Most of them can't write. Don't care because somehow they feel that because they're so intelligent, that's going to somehow riddle down to the writing. But nope. The best writers are not the most intelligent writers. The best writers are the people that have put together through work ethic, meaning constantly rewriting, constantly reviewing things, constantly trying to understand what's going on. That's where the best writing comes from. Rewriting. I'll make a short note over here. Uh, Nobel Prize uh, 2020 went to Louise Glick, American poet. Congratulations, Mrs. Glick. I've read some of your stuff before. Not the greatest fans, but I can tell you one thing. Perfect example of somebody that is both intelligent and can write. And why? Because you could tell from her writing that she's made certain decisions. You could even tell that she's did a lot of rewriting because you could literally see that there's pertinent passages. She could have went this direction. She went this other direction instead. It's the classic brilliant writing. So certainly deserves what she got. Certainly glad to see a poet out there. That's great. Especially since the last time they've given a writer uh, this prize was Bob Dylan. I don't want to angry anybody in there, but I'm sorry, Bob Dylan, uh, writing songs and poetry and getting a Nobel Prize. I don't see it, okay? Clever fellow. God bless him. Did some cool stuff in the 60s. Nobel Prize. Um, I don't know. Maybe they were sleeping on that on that year in 2016. But uh, Louise Glick, yes, she's in our she's in our wheelhouse. Thank you very much there, Nobel Prize people. Okay. All right, folks. Until next time, that was episode 154. Yep, the creation of concrete minimalism. God bless, folks. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.